Jennifer Stone, with a reading from my memoir, Telegraph Avenue, then first published, oh, long ago in 1977. Beats getting all dressed up, spending an evening being gorgeous, just for the sake of a few orgasmic moments, or even for a few non-orgasmic moments, I'll give it a whirl. I'll even give it a title. Neo-narcissism. <laughs> Cookie crumb. All my life I've lied. Made things up. Made the picture fit the dream. All my life I told myself that chalk was cheese. Until, of course, it was. April 1975. I don't want to go home to an empty television set. I'll go to La Promethea and listen to poets. Here they are. So very young. I feel trapped between the generations. Who isn't? This cafe could be North Beach in the 1950s. Only hippies are not beatniks, are not repeating what we were saying then. I pin false flowers on my dress, the belladonna, deadly nightshade. Bell-shaped, deep crimson flowers with glistening black berries. I set my black hat at an angle. No one here would recognize me if I changed my clothes. On the wall hangs a painting of La Salamandrine, the one who passes through fire unscathed. A portrait of Promethea smiles at her from the poet's platform. Eastern carpets, red lantern light. An old piano, stained glass windows. They get me as far as the bar. With wine before me, I consider the poet's stage. 
kind of pulpit. A noose hangs from the ceiling, twined with plastic red roses. A poet arrives. Taking a chair to the stage, he piles his work on the platform. The manuscripts spill. He pulls up another chair on which he places his beer and another pile of manuscripts. His voice can be heard from under a wide-brimmed hat, he tells us. He is a gay poet. His poems are printed on embossed paper. He likes the look of the thing, he says. He makes academic jokes which underplay life. Wreaths of cigarette smoke come from underneath the great flat hat. The poems are about the pain of being cast as the other woman. In his relationships, he is the other woman with a mustache, that kind of thing. I won't call him a derivative derelict because I liked his hat. Another poet reads, and he's gay too, he says, but he, he wants to be called queer. He dresses tough, reads crotch and foreskin poems. Two middle-aged straight males have wandered into the wrong bar. There is an altercation, obscene words and gestures. Damn hippie preverts, the cognoscenti demands silence for this esoteric obscenity coming from the stage. So few voices in the world and so many echoes. Who was the first original, the first cave person to speak? In the beginning was the word. And that word was probably, oh, bleep. And everyone everywhere said it all at once. When the queer poet finishes, he says he hopes he scared hell out of us, a black poet, admonishes the audience to clap equally for each poet in turn. Because it's all the same, man. It's all the same. Oh, the same voices echoing, echoing forever. A gang of strolling players break up the scene. They have come to perform a satire on the arrogance of poets. Terminal megalomania, narcissism, delusions of grandeur. The trouble with poets, says Julia Vinograd, Telegraph Avenue's resident poet and bubble lady. The trouble with poets is nobody shoots them. One of the players wearing a trench helmet with antlers 
holds the audience captive with a burp gun and a fire hose. Irene Dogmatic appears, wearing lace underwear and uh, rhinestones on her rump. She admits men bring out the masochist in her. She sits with a gigantic bag between her legs. She pleads with the antlers not to have to carry this bag around with her every month. <sighs> Finally, she gives up and pulls the cord. The contents of the bag are dredged from between her legs. Blood-soaked rags, broken baby dolls, American flags, the curlers... Blood-stained underpants, nylon stockings, girdles, baskets of broken eggs, and more female flotsam, all pouring forth to the music of our national anthem. The last poet says, he hasn't anything left to say, he said it all. But he didn't want to go home without taking his turn, and so he thought he would show us a little can of worms. Each little worm should be examined in turn, he says, because it's all the same. Each one, each worm, each word. Late April 1975, everyone has written a poem about a laundromat. I feel left out. I can't go to a laundromat on purpose. It's against my rules for creating uh, a found or accidental poem. It's not right to try. At last, I have to go in a laundromat to use the phone. I look around furtively, and there sits my poem. He is a young, black male sitting under the hairdryer, wearing pink topsy curlers in his hair. He is smoking brown cigarettes and reading the letters of George Jackson. Oh, my God, he's me. The end of April 1975. Why can't I get it together? Blue pencil blues. This difficulty of refining and rewriting, I can't do it today. Endless adding, dangling, expanding reflections in mud. Cut crap when in doubt, throw it out, squeeze the essence out of the meaning, get rid of unnecessary references, names of things, maps of thoughts. I'll work in one style only. I'll order a form or form an order. It always seems that everything is necessary to me 
and only always more is needed, but nothing is ever necessary except to be going on from there where it was to where is the next thing. It's no use saying things. Necessity and memory are dry rot. Reason and psychology are excuses. Secrets of the heart are seldom news. The party line is bugged. It blocks the private vision. Doris Lessing says, Novels are lying nostalgia. So, why not write the truth? It is not possible to write lies, yes. Only to read them. Blue pencil blues. Poems are not saying, saying what is needed is not. Writing, hearing is not. Poems, typing is not. Writing too witty is not. Saying, simply do, simply saying each time truly and lie when it's time for comedy and say convention when it's time for tragedy, tragedy dies and comedy marries and history takes all day. So say nothing at all as often as may be. And remember, we are not going anywhere, not this time. The end, the end of April 1975. Gertrude Stein writes, Do you know because I tell you so? Or do you know? Do you know? Evening in the coffee house. Once more, I'm sitting here, reading my notebook in which I have written that thing he said. There are only two kinds of women in the world, he said. The loved and the unloved. I make a note in the margin. Bob Benchley once said, there are only two sorts of people in the world, those who divide people into two groups and those who don't. Young women come into the cafe on deans, sea nymphs, swimming through the smoke, floating down onto chairs. Ah! as if settling on coral stools, sand sinking down around them, marfire shining in their hair. I do not listen to their voices. At the table in the window sits a young woman named Echo. She is a Maynard seduced by Pan. He sits grinning at her with Saturnalian glee. 
She's been his to command ever since her heart broke during that fatal affair with Narcissus. It helps me to use names for things. It's why I went to school. The names of the myths help distance the pain. On bad days, I call myself Cassandra. It's harmless. A young male I've known for some time sits down at my table. He makes his living stealing books, usually books on philosophy, and selling them back to the bookstores. He listens carefully to the undines at the next table. I ask him if he can remember the name of the woman who killed herself in Hitler's flat in Berlin, 1931. I read somewhere she was the great love of Hitler's life. I never doubted he had one. The young male does not hear my question, why am I always wringing my hands and talking about dying, he wants to know. I only wondered, I tell him, if she might not have changed history. I wonder a lot about things like that. When Stalin's wife shot herself, all Stalin said was, how could she do this to me, or words to that effect? Your history is not true, the young male says. Stalin had her killed. Everyone knows she said something he didn't like during a dinner party, and after he sent her to her room, he sent along someone to shoot her. Ah, the young sea nymph, sitting closest to us, turns to another young woman at her table and says, well, she sure as hell wants to get laid this evening, and the young male who steals philosophy books turns a little white and says, she sounds awfully aggressive. I assure him she's only bored, so he turns on her and makes what would once have been named a forward a rose by any other name would smell. May, it's May Day, 1975. The politics of lipstick. I'm suffering from a split lip. I've given up lipstick. It was a political decision, heavy. I used to wear a dark mauve eggplant. My lips are cracked, chapped. I am tight-lipped like a dried prune. I must lie a lot or my mouth would be relaxed, not twisted and wrinkled, bitten and bleeding. 
Last night, I gave a woman a hug. She took that as a political statement, the revolution of touch. Her mood changed when she saw my eyeshadow. She resented it. Oh, I can't give up my eyeshadow. I've got faded Dutch blue eyes. They disappear behind my glasses. She tells me a gob of blue eyeshadow makes a suppliant statement. Blue, she says. Blue is pretty and appealing. I should get rid of the soft colors and use coal. This is charcoal and fierce. Looking around the room, I saw she was right. I was the only woman wearing any makeup. When I was in high school, only liberated tramps wore makeup. Here I am again. History repeats herself. A morning in May 1975, there is a young woman on the subway platform. There's baby on her back, baby on her lap, baby in her belly. At her age, I hadn't even made it. God bless the finger-flying fifties. An afternoon in May. 1975. Party line feminists overheard in coffee house. Uh, how is your vagina, dear? Oh, my vagina's okay, I guess. How's China? Oh, China. Never mind about China. I mean, well, China's got her hang-ups and I've got mine. Oh, your vagina's in trouble then. <laughs> I'll say, I mean, even my shrink thinks I'm in impenetrable. But he does have hope. Uh, well, no, but I have medical. A night in May, 1975. Mm begins with a quote from Henry Miller. And uh, Henry Miller said, An old woman is a dead loss. A young man sits in the coffee house reading The Tropic of Cancer. This Miller's the Messiah man, the young woman with him does not agree he is your poet, she says. He doesn't speak for me. The young man tells her, uh, Henry Miller speaks for everyone. The poet, wrote Henry Miller, is not one who writes verses, but someone who is capable of profoundly altering the world. That is, a messianic mother like Miller. The young woman asks me if I don't think 
Miller was more narcissistic than messianic. I tell them, Henry Miller was a serious artist, and he made big changes. His phallocentrism is more fun than D.H. Lawrence's, if not as poetic. The young man says, yes, this is because Henry Miller rejected his mother. Lawrence loved his. That's what makes the difference, he says. If you don't reject your mother, it impedes your manhood. Impedes is the word he used. The young woman's name is Karen. She's into poetry and zen. She rejects Freud and the phallocentrics. She laughs and calls them a new rock band. She tells the young man, whose name is Steve, that she does not recognize any difference between platonic love and sexual love. She refuses to separate lust from love. While Karen gets another cappuccino, Steve asks me, Should we tell her? Platonic love was Plato's love for boys. Genital sex is at the bottom of everything. I know, you know that at your age, you tell her. She'll believe an older woman. Oh, four years is a long time trying to relate to these Berkeley poets' futility is setting in after Steve goes. Karen sighs. She asks, where is all this sisterhood she's been hearing about among women writers? Her disillusion betrays her youth. She feels poetry is no longer being written in the spiritual tradition. She loses her own faith now and then. Where? is the sacred text to guide us. I use my Yiddish accent to try and tell her. <laughs> In the beginning was the void, and the void has failed us. You've been listening to the voice of Jennifer Stone, reading from her memoir, Telegraph Avenue Then. You can listen to all the chapters in our archives online at kpfa.org. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadows out 
For KPFA's author events, this is Bob Baldock assuring you we'll be presenting some exceptionally compelling authors in 2019. Chinese-American author Hajin will be here with The Banished Immortal, A Life of Li Po, a biography of China's great Taoist poet. Dar Jamail and Antonio Juhas will mingle their deep environmental knowledge in an event asking, Is Earth in hospice mode? Early in February, Robert Reich will discuss his profound new manifesto, The Common Good. Then Nick Estes and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz will discuss Standing Rock and the long tradition of indigenous resistance. Greg Grandin will be bringing his new book, The Wall, The Meaning of the Border in the New America. As for starters, you know, while 2019 might not offer much true jubilation, together we can feel joy in our growing resistance. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF Fresno, 97.5 K248BR Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org. A quick reminder that your local station board elections are happening now. Please visit kpfa.org or elections.pacifica.org to read candidate statements and more information about the election. You are eligible to vote if you donated a minimum of $25 between October 2nd, 2017 and October 20th, 2018. Look out for your ballot either via email or postal mail starting January 7th, 2019. Have questions? Contact the local election supervisor by emailing les underscore kpfa at pacifica.org. <laughs> 